Take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. As we continue in our examination of some of the events in the life of David. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Mirab, I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, as a wife. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired, therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed two hundred men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, 
and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the word of God, and I pray in the the moments that remain that you'll help us, Father, to cover uh, this passage. Help us, Lord God, uh, to understand what you have for us today. I pray, Lord, you'd fill me with your spirit, uh, Lord, and uh, help me to say only the things that should be said. Protect me from saying the things I ought not, and just guide our time. Uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, those who need to hear anything particular from this passage would hear it today. And I pray all of us would hear and uh, be changed as you would have us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Right before I get into the message this morning, I have to answer a question that was posed two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, you will remember, we were in chapter 17, and we were talking about the story of David and Goliath. And I conveniently stopped before we got to the very end of chapter 17. And there is a somewhat confusing passage at the end of chapter 17. So flip over there just for a second, and I want to answer this fellow's question. Dan is the one who asked this question. It was a good question. It fills the commentaries, and it was uh, astute to notice it. So... Let's notice, the very end of chapter 17, you remember what's happened here? David has now killed Goliath, and he has returned to Saul. Verse number 55, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the youth, or commander of the army, Abner's, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And so David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And the question is, what in the world's wrong with Saul? How come he did not know this person who had been sitting in his palace for all of this time? You recall, we'd already learned that David was playing his harp for Saul, whatever the spirit, this depressing spirit for the Lord came upon him. And so he should have known who David was. And so that's the question. Is this a contradiction in the Bible? He apparently already knew him. Why didn't he? Let me read you just a couple of quotes that will hopefully help us to see the the, uh, answer to this question. One person said, why could not Saul recognize David, who had already served him for some time as musician and armor bearer? Well, one answer is that Saul was not asking who David was, but for the first time was curious about David's family connections. And that is an important thing to notice there. He never did ask, who are you? He asked, whose son is that young man, verse number 55. When David himself was interrogated, he did not say, I am David. He said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Another person said, Saul's question to Abner after David killed Goliath, whose son is that young man, does not suggest that Saul did not know his young harpist. Saul's question concerned David's family line, as David's answer revealed, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. So that's one answer, and actually, I think that's probably the right answer. There are other answers that people have come up with. For example, one person said another, perhaps better solution is that David's previous service had been brief and intermittent, and now several years had passed since Saul had last seen him. If, for example, David had been only 12 years old when he came as Saul's musician and had stayed off and and on for only a year or so, He might have been 17 or 18 by the time of the Philistine episode and no longer recognizable to Saul. That's possible, too. But I don't like that one. I like the other one specifically because it fits the language of the text. He didn't ask him, who are you? He asked him, whose family you are. So, Dan, I hope that answers your question. And I appreciated him bringing that a couple of weeks ago. You know, we don't know all the answers 
I certainly don't know all the answers, but if there's ever a question that comes up about anything that is said from this pulpit, don't hesitate to ask the question. The answer might be, I don't know, but we will do our very best to answer your questions. So don't hesitate. Now, to our text for today, First uh, Samuel chapter 18. I want to talk to you just for a few minutes today about how God molded a king. And uh, I'm going to talk fast today because uh, we're, we're already well into our... I should be wrapping up by now, but uh, I'll talk as fast as I can. And I can talk pretty fast. We're in a long section now here, starting in chapter 18, when we see that David, who was anointed the king, was not yet the king and was being prepared uh, to be king. One commentary labeled this time in David's life, David, the king in waiting. And I think that's what we see here. In chapters 18 through 21, we see David in the court of King Saul, serving there in a variety of ways. After chapter 21, we see David is kicked out of the court, and we see him for a while then fleeing for his very life in exile from Saul and going through all kinds of trials and difficulties. And I would suggest this morning that all of these things that we see here, God used to mold David and to make David into what he needed to be before he could assume the throne. This past week I was, I was watching one of those time-lapse videos. You ever see one of those time-lapse videos? This was one of somebody who was sculpting. And they were sculpting a human face. And when the video first started, there was just this lump of clay there. And then you just saw this person's hands coming and going and coming and going. And as they would take off a little bit here and trowel a little bit there and add a little bit of clay there and smooth it off and slap water and do all these things that they do, seemingly, magically, this lump of clay was transported into a truly amazing and beautiful uh, replica of a human face. And as I watched that video, I could not help but think that's what's happening here to date in this passage of Scripture. That's what happens to us. God molds us throughout our lives. He trowels a little bit here and takes off a little bit there, adds a little bit there, but he molds us. And in this passage, I think we see several things that God used to mold David. Uh, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot in this passage, and you may see some others, but, but I'm going I'm to limit it to four. And actually, we'll only talk about two today. We'll save the other two for next week. But, but, but four things I see in here that God used to mold David into the king he was going to become. Number one was work work. Number two was friends. Really a friend, singular. Number three was family. And number four was opposition. Let's just look at the first two, just for a few minutes this morning. God used work to mold David. God molded David through work. Now, we've already learned that David had been brought into the, king, into the court of King Saul to play for him because he was a musician. And when Saul would have this evil spirit from the Lord come upon him, or distressing spirit from the Lord, as the New King James says, when that would happen, David would play his harp and soothe his mind and be helpful. But up until this time, David has been part-time at that job. He has been coming when Saul needed him, and then he has been returning to his father's fields and tending the sheep. And so he was part-time in both places. And we know that from chapter 17 and verse 15. But if we look here, the very first part of what we read in verse number 2, we see that Saul now puts an end to that. And from this point on now, David is full-time in the service of King Saul. And one of the things that we learn about, I think, as we look down through here, is just how seriously David took his service, his work. He threw himself into whatever it was that he was supposed to be doing. He did it with all his might. We had already seen that in his shepherding, hadn't we? Remember that 
he mentioned the fact that he had, uh, he had had a lion jump into his flock and take one lamb. And David had jumped that lion and bashed it over the head just to save one lamb. That's, that's just taking your job of shepherding far more seriously than most of us would have done. He took it seriously. Same with the bear. He did the same thing. And now we see it here in his service for Saul and the people of Israel. Let's just notice a few different ways we see it. Look at verse number 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David served faithfully when he was placed over the men of war. Now that verse would seem to indicate that David was in charge of the entire military under Saul. It would seem to indicate that. It would seem to be a position of great authority and great responsibility and certainly great honor. And if we're reading this correctly, he performed it very, very well. He took that job seriously and he threw himself into it. But look also at verse number 10. Verse number 10 says, David played music with his hand as at other times. So here he is now, he's been promoted into the position of being over the military of the land, and yet, when he's called upon to do the little menial task that he used to do, playing his harp to calm Saul's raging spirit, he still was willing to do that as well. He was willing to do the simple and more menial tasks that were still needed. Even if you look at verse number 11, after Saul tried to pin him to the wall with the javelin, we'll talk about that more when we get to the matter of opposition, but uh, even after that, he continued to take that role seriously and serve the Lord in that way. Uh, if we look at verse number 13, Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. I see there that when, even when he was demoted, he continued to serve faithfully. Now some people look at that and they interpret it that, he was, that Saul was promoting him, but it doesn't seem to say that. The text seems to indicate that it was a demotion. Uh, he was getting him out of his presence. He was kicking him out. He wanted him away from him. Saul did. Uh, and, then, and in verse number 5, we've already seen that he was put over all of the military, and now he's only put over just a 1,000. So it, it seems that this was a demotion. That Saul was saying to him, I don't want you around anymore. And yet we see here that he went out and he came in before the people. He took that job just as seriously as he did any of the others. You know, some folks will only serve if they're out front, if they're getting credit. Some, having been promoted to a certain level of service in life, whether it be in the church or in, in secular pursuits, some, some uh, are never willing to stoop to serving at a lower level. Again, that wasn't David. David was perfectly content to serve no matter where the Lord put him, at the highest possible level, even at the lowest Possible levels. It reminds me of a story I heard one time, and I don't know if this story is true. You know, you hear these stories, and you just don't know if they're true or not, but they make good illustrations, so we use them anyway. But this particular story was told of a uh, young man who went through Bible college, seminary, graduated, and he uh, took a position at a large church. And on his first day, he walked into the pastor's office, the, I guess it would have been the senior pastor in that church, and he walked in and introduced himself and said, I'm happy to be here. Uh, what are my duties? What do you want me to do? And the pastor looked across the desk at him and he says, Well, you know, our janitor called off sick today. So it would be helpful if you just go down and closets down there, the cleaning supplies are in there. Would you get the cleaning supplies out and, and uh, go and bathrooms need cleaned and things like that after the service? Well, he was a guest. He had gone to seminary. He was, he was beyond that kind of thing. But the fact is that pastor was trying to see what he'd be like David, 
Would he be one who would be willing to do whatever needed to be done? Or would he always need to be in the limelight? David was willing to do whatever needed to be done. And when given difficult tasks to do, David didn't just do the very minimal amount he had to do. David went above and beyond in his service for the Lord. Look at verse number 27. Verse 27, therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And since the children are in here with us today, we'll stop right there. You know, we were at uh, the Basics Conference last year, and uh, Dr. Vadi Bakum was preaching. And he was talking about the fact that he doesn't have a junior church ever in his church. The children are always in service with him. And somebody asked the question, they said, well, what do you do when you come to difficult passages of Scripture? And if you have read this, you know this is a difficult passage of Scripture to discuss with the children in the, world, in the room. And he said, when I come to one of those passages of Scripture, I just have to go slowly, like a woodpecker with a headache. And I thought that was pretty good. So we're going to go slowly this morning. And we're not, going to t- we're not going to talk about all those things. You can see what it says right there. But the fact is, when Saul offered Michael, his daughter, to David, as a bride price, he demanded 100 Philistines to be killed. That was the price for the hand of Michael. And he wanted evidence of their death to be brought back. And that gruesome evidence that is described right there, if you study this out, you'll find that it actually was quite common in that day for that type of evidence to be demanded. Some commentators pointed out that there may have been a deeper meaning to it, that it may have been because of the fact that the Philistines did not take part in the covenant of circumcision, that evidence would prove that this was truly Philistines. I don't know if that's true or not. But the fact is, the task was huge. What he asked him to do was gargantuan. It really, if we were to just be honest about it, we'd say it was impossible. What Saul was attempting to do here was to get David out of the picture. What Saul was attempting to do here was to give him a task that would have resulted in his death at the hands of the Philistines. And yet, not only did David provide the hundred, he went above and beyond and doubled it and provided two hundred. Amazing. You know, I heard Dr. Curtis Hutchins preach one time and he was preaching a sermon. I don't remember the sermon, but I just remember one particular thing he said. He mentioned what he believed to be the secret of success in a single sentence. And it was that little phrase by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 41 when he said, Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And that was David. Not just doing what needed to be done. Going above and beyond. You see, in every way, David served with distinction. Look at verse number 14. David behaved wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Took every task seriously. He bloomed where he was planted. No matter what assignment was given to him, he worked hard at it. And I believe God used every one of those experiences to mold David into the king he needed to be. Just as he uses every such experience in our life to mold us and to shape us into what he wants to make us into. Whatever level of service God has us currently involved in, he's using it. He's molding us. And so we need to work hard at it. And so I guess the application to us this morning would be, what has he called you to do? What is it that God has tasked you with? And if right now sitting in your seat you're saying saying in your little brain, nothing? Well, you're not listening to God. Because nobody is tasked with nothing. God has given all of us a gift. And God expects all of us to serve. And so I've been reading a book lately by David Platt. I haven't decided yet if I want to recommend this book or not. I like some parts of it and other parts of it I don't. But I did like this statement. He had one statement in there that was very, very good. He said, every single follower of Christ fishing for men 
Every single disciple making disciples. No more spectators. I like that. That's what Ecclesiastes 9 is talking about when it says, Whatsoever thy hand finds to do, do it with thy might. That's what Romans 12 is talking about when it says, We're to be not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit. That's what Colossians 3.23 is talking about when it says, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. So whatever God has called us to do, we need to do it with all our might. That's what David did. And I believe God used it to mold a king. Number two. Number two, God not only used, not only molded David through his work, he molded David through friendships. Friendships. You know, one of the greatest friendships recorded in the Bible is the friendship we see here between David and Jonathan. Now, I was going to spend some time explaining to you what this does not say. Because if anybody has studied this out, if anybody has listened to liberal preachers talk about this particular thing, you have probably heard it stated that this is an example in the Bible of a homosexual relationship. It is not. I'm not going to spend any time on that. If you want to know why I say it is not, I'll be glad to explain that to you later, but for sake of time, we're not going to. It, that's hogwash. It is not. This is just an example of a friendship between two men, an important friendship that developed and influenced and molded David into a king. Here in this chapter, in the very first verses, we see that friendship established. In chapter 19, we see uh, Jonathan standing up before his father and protecting and, and uh, guarding David from his father's wrath. In chapter 20, we see Jonathan helping David to escape Saul's murderous plots. He might not have escaped had it not been for his friend Jonathan. We see from chapter 20 that Saul, uh, Jonathan knew that he was the heir to the throne. He knew that... He was the one who was expected to take the throne, and by promoting and supporting David, he was throwing that away, but he supported him anyway. And then in chapter 23, we see their very last encounter before Jonathan is killed in battle. And in that last encounter, we see him coming to David and encouraging him and strengthening him. David would later honor the covenant that they had made by uh, taking care of Mephibosheth, a uh, uh, descendant of Jonathan. So second, and that's in Second Samuel chapter nine. So this was a tremendous friendship, a tremendous friendship. In spite of the personal cost to Jonathan, that friendship uh, grew. He cared about David. Verse number one says, "The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul." Verse number three says, "Jonathan and David made a covenant. They had each other's backs. They took care of each other." Verse number four says, uh, Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. That speaks of the fact that he honored his friend and made sure others did as well. One person said that to receive any part of the dress of a sovereign or even of a sovereign son, in the case of Jonathan, was deemed in the East to be the absolute highest honor that could be given. And Jonathan gave that to David. And if you wonder about that, all you got to do is go look at Esther, chapter 6, and remember the story of Haman and Mordecai. You know, if you ever want to laugh reading the Bible, if you, if you want a book that will make you laugh, you got to go read Esther. I think it's the funniest book in the Bible. And Haman is one of the funniest, tragically funny, characters in the Bible. Uh, let me just read a little bit of it. Let me just read that part to you. The fact is, Haman was a wicked uh, servant of the king. Mordecai was a Jew whom Haman hated and wanted dead. And 
there came a time when the king actually wanted to honor Mordecai. He didn't understand, he didn't know about this situation between Haman and Mordecai. And so in a side conversation with Haman, the king, thinking to himself, I want to, I want to honor Mordecai. The king asks Haman how he should do it. Now listen to, listen to the conversation. Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And so he thinks to himself, he must be talking about me. And so what is the greatest possible honor that I could tell the king that, that, that he could give somebody? Because that's what I want. Here, listen to what, what Haman says. Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on his head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested. And do so for Mordecai the Jew. I just think that's hilarious. But it is an illustration, is it not, of what happened here with Jonathan. This was a way of honoring David and showing the whole world that they were indeed friends. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about friends. And I just want to mention a few things here because I think there's some applications that could be made and then we'll be done. The Bible says, for example, that friends can be helpful. Helpful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. We quote that verse a lot, Proverbs 27, 17. We quote that a lot in men's Bible study. And in a prayer breakfast, iron sharpens iron. So friends can be helpful. But the Bible also says friends can be hurtful, does it not? Job had friends, but in his greatest time of need, they turned against him. He said in chapter 16, my friends scorned me. My eyes pour out tears to God. He said in chapter 19, all my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. Paul knew that pain when Demas forsook him, having loved this present world. Jesus knew that pain when all the disciples forsook him and fled. Friends can be hurtful. And friends can be a bad influence in our lives. When we get further along in the life of David, when we see David as an older man and we see his children are grown, we're going to learn about one of his sons by the name of Amnon. You can read about Amnon in Second Samuel chapter 13. And we'll get there one of these days and talk about that if the Lord doesn't come first. But if you look at that passage, you'll see that the, the, the whole story seems to turn on one phrase. Second Samuel chapter 13 and verse number 3 says that Amnon had a friend. Amnon had a friend. And you read the story and you'll see that his friend influenced him to do incredibly evil things. Friends can be a bad influence. All parents would do well to have their children read 2 Samuel chapter 13. Teach them about Amnon. See, friends can corrupt. Friends can lead us away from God. Friends can lead us toward evil. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Or as the ESV puts it, ruins good morals. Or as the NIV puts it, corrupts good character. Friends can be a bad influence. Another thing the Bible teaches about friends is that we ought to be friends to one another. We in the church 
ought to be friends one with another. Romans chapter 12, be kindly affection to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. And oh, I wish we had time this morning to talk about this, but we need to cultivate friendships in the church. You need Christian friends. If you don't have Christian friends, you need to pray and ask God to give you some. You need Christian friends. You know, every once in a while, somebody will start coming to church. Not just here, but any church. And they'll come faithfully for a short period of time. They'll be all on fire. And then they'll fall away. pastor will go. Somebody will go and visit with them and say, hey, we're concerned about you. We haven't seen you in a while. And they'll hear something like this. Well, I just didn't fit in there. Or I didn't have any friends there. And the reality almost always is they didn't have any friends because they were Sunday morning only people who came and went and never spent the slightest bit of time trying to become friendly to anybody else. You know, if you want to have friends in the local church, you need to get involved. Attend Sunday school. Attend Bible studies. Bring your kids to Sunday school. Parents, bring your kids to Sunday school. They need to develop Christian friends. Get involved in the team ministry. All the different things. All the different things. Come to a work day. Come to bowl with us. Come play golf with us. There's all kinds of opportunities to become, to make friends. And here at Friendship Bible Church, we, we strive that even more. Strive for that even more. But you've got to choose to do it. And you need to do it. You need to do it. Because we need friends in the church. Solomon spoke about the value of a friend. He said two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. If they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. For he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So we need friends. And then one last thought. We have a friend. We have a friend who is closer than a brother. You know, our tagline here at Friendship Bible Church is you have friends here. And I hope it's true. And I hope you know it's true. And I hope that you experience that. But whether you feel it or not, there are friends here who love you. And whether you believe that or not, there is one friend who loves you and is there for you beyond all others. You know, there may come times in your life when you don't feel the presence of friends. There may come a time in your life when you feel alone. There may come a time when, frankly, you wonder whether anybody cares at all. That's the kind of time Job experienced. That's the kind of time Paul experienced, our Savior experienced. There may come times when your friends try to drag you away from the Lord as Amnon, his friend, did. At such times, we need to remember that we have a friend in Jesus. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24 Jonathan may be a good example of a friend sacrificing his career, sacrificing his personal advancement, all that kind of stuff, his popularity, his royal honor for a friend. But Jesus is the greatest example. Jesus sacrificed all. He said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends. Is that one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible? You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, 
For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Well, I'm done. God molded David through his work. God molded David through his friend, Jonathan. And in a similar fashion, I, I, would, I would say today that God is working in your life to mold you into the man or the woman God wants you to be. The experiences that you gain as you serve the Lord here or wherever, whatever he's calling you to do, are a vital part of that molding. So here's the challenge this morning. Here's the question. Are you listening to God's call in your life? Are you surrendered to do whatever it is he's asking you to do? I wonder this morning, have you ever said to God, whatever it is you want me to do, whether it's menial or whether it's great, whatever it is, I'll do it. Have you ever said that? I think we all need to come to a place in our life when we say that. God, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be what you want me to be. I surrender all. And when we get to that place, God will use those things to mold us into what he wants us to be. And also, he will use friends in our life as well. You know, you may have some friends you need to walk away from. You may have some friends that are corrupting influences in your life you need to walk away. You may also need to seek out some new ones. You may also need to cultivate some friendships within the body of Christ. But mostly, mostly, it's that friend who sticks closer than a brother that you need to seek. That's the one that is most important. James Small wrote a familiar hymn, and I'll close with these words. He said, I've found a friend. Oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart still closely twine those ties which naught can sever, for I am his, and he is mine, forever and forever. Do you know him? Do you know that friend who loved you enough to lay down his life for you? And if not, will you run to him today? Will you flee to him today? Will you turn your life over to him today? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved today? Will you call upon the name of the Lord, that friend who so wants to be in your life today?